we're going to be in Matthew 12 today, which you probably knew that already if you've been coming at all and keeping up. But the good news is, is we're going to be in all of Matthew 12 today. We're going to knock out a whole chapter. And um, as we continue the study of Matthew's gospel, one of the things that I said a few weeks ago when we were back in chapter 8 is that we were, we were beginning to see how different people respond to Jesus in different ways. And I, I broadly categorized reaction to Jesus in, in one of three categories, okay? To, um, people who were needy and people who admired and then people who um, opposed. And so needy people follow Jesus. Um, admirers use Jesus and those who were, those, um, who were, it was those who were religious opposed Jesus. And I told you that you would, you would see this all the way through the rest of Matthew, that you could broadly put yourself into just one of those three categories. Am I a follower? Am I a user, an admirer, or am I in opposition? And there are more than, you can be opposed to Jesus for non-religious reasons, but in Jesus' context, it's the religious who, who oppose. So, and as, as Matthew 9 and 10 kind of unfolded, uh, and th- through chapter 11, we've, we've seen recently here three, uh, two different kind of things where Jesus is bringing the truth of the gospel to bear. Okay, so the first thing we saw is, is Jesus speak to doubt. And it was John the Baptist who, because of his circumstances and his expectations, doubted whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. The very one, right, who's John the bulldozer pre- preparing the way for, for Jesus, the very one who was doing that, was now sitting in prison and not seeing the truth that he was proclaiming. He didn't see it coming true. And in fact, it was, it was missing, it was short of his expectations. And so Jesus dealt with that doubt by bringing gospel clarity. So to doubt, Jesus brings gospel clarity. Then, there were, you know, there's this crowd around and they begin... Now, they're not doubting, they're skeptical. And skepticism is different than doubt. You can't have doubt unless you have belief. Doubt is part of belief, Okay. But skepticism, uh, that is unbelief that's, that's mired in uh, some sort of affinity for what it is that you're, you know, that you're interested in. So these are basically people who are using Jesus. They are admirers, but they're skeptical. They're around, but they're not following. And Jesus spoke uh, gospel clarity to skepticism last week. Okay. Now, in chapter 12, we have opposition. So we've had gospel clarity to doubt, gospel clarity to skepticism, and now we have gospel clarity for those who oppose Jesus. What may surprise you is that in the Bible, those who are most opposed to Jesus are very devout religious people that you would admire, that that you would want your daughter to marry. That's who stands in opposite. Now, there's, like I said, in our day and age, uh, religiosity is less, it, within Christianity, it may be that, that religion is less oppositional. We don't, we don't think about the religious being oppositional to Jesus. We just, we just, we're just glad that people show up to church post-COVID. Okay. But the threat is still there. Okay, and that's what the text is dealing with. That's what we're going to deal with today. And so what, the, the thing I want to show you is that some of the steepest opposition to Jesus in your life is wrapped up in the things that you do as a religious person 
to practice your faith. That you will, you can idol, you you can uh, worship, you can make an idol out of your practice of your faith and totally miss Jesus. Um, and and, it, and it's very very, uh, it's very deceptive. Um, so here, here, let's get in the text. Matthew twelve um, one through eight. The, the first thing that I want you to see is that opposition for Jesus is rooted in a love for your Bible. Think about that for a second. Opposition to Jesus is rooted, was for the Pharisees, it was rooted in a love for Scripture. It's misguided, but it's a love for the Scriptures. Look at, look at Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and he began to pick and eat some heads of grain, wheat, corn, whatever. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay. So what's, what's going on here is that... Let me, let me start over. Before we get into a, a negative understanding of the Pharisees, I think, I think we would all do good just to be grateful for them for a minute. Because if you, if you think back to the story of the Old Testament, the, the Jews were really good at losing the, the law. <laughs> we lost the ark. When Josiah had to find Deuteronomy in the, in, when they were renovating the temple. They had no idea that they were supposed to be doing anything Jewish, right? That they were practicing it. They weren't doing it all. They, had, they were really good at losing the word. And, and all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah, they didn't know what they were doing. And so finally, when Jerusalem was sacked and you've got a temple that's destroyed and the Lord sends Ezra and the Lord sends Nehemiah and he sends a remnant back in to rebuild the city using a pagan king to fund it. It's there in the rebuilding of the temple that the law is read in Ezra 7, right? And, and there's revival and, there's a, and there, it's being read, it's being taught and being discipled. It's at that moment in Jewish history where they actually get very serious about being a people of the book. They weren't worried about it until then, until they lost everything. When they lost everything, they still had the Bible and they were rebuilding the temple. They became a people of the book. And that's the root, that's the, that's the root of Pharisee. The Jewish people were, were living, trying to live and love the law, okay? So that's, that's good, okay? But here's what happened. The, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish people, they were so anxious to study what Scripture said that they forgot what Scripture meant. Okay? So the law says... Keep the Sabbath day holy, to which someone might ask, well, how do I do that? And then that, which is a, which is a good question. You want to practically keep the Sabbath holy, to which the Old Testament says, you know, these days you worked, and on this one you don't. Well, there's your answer. You don't work, which is very convicting for just a hot minute there. Okay. Um, so you, you, that, that's how you keep it. But, well, then, but then the, the heart wants to say, well, How? And thus begins the slippery slope of trying to nuance exactly what the law says and forgetting eventually what it means, okay? It's a slippery slope toward legalism, okay? And so in the Pharisees' case, the law said, keep the Sabbath holy, and they created these, you know, it's like dozens of 
laws, if you will, of guidelines, provisions that they, they elevated to the place of Scripture to say that if you did these things, you were breaking the Sabbath law, the law to keep the Sabbath holy. And the result of that, and one of which was picking grain, okay? The result of that is that something that's very liberating, the Sabbath, becomes very backbreaking, right? It took something that God made for us, Jesus would say in another passage, and it made it work against us, okay? So Jesus' disciples weren't breaking the commandment regarding the Sabbath. They were just breaking one of these regulations that the Pharisees had created, presumably to help somebody know whether or not they were breaking the Sabbath. So the, 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 here's what happened. The Pharisees could no longer distinguish between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. They knew what the scripture said, but they'd forgotten what it meant. Okay? So their opposition to Jesus was rooted in a love for scripture. And Jesus' response is absolutely beautiful. Listen to verses, look at verses 3 through 8. Haven't you, he said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God, they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and they are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is beautiful for two reasons. Number one, Jesus responds to the Pharisees who love Scripture. He responds with Scripture. He meets them right where they are. And there are times where Jesus does this We're even going to see it. It takes on a little more of a combative, prophetic kind of tone. But here it's actually, I think, very compassionate. It's not not combative. It's corrective because there are right ways and wrong ways to interpret your Bible. But it's compassionate. And I say it's compassionate because of what he says here. Did you catch it? In verse 5, right? He says, or verse 4 and 5, he says, "I'm, I'm the greater David. I'm the, I'm the greater temple. I'm the greater priest. I'm the greater, I'm the Lord of the, the Sabbath. He says, if you want to interpret the scriptures correctly, you need to understand that I am the fulfillment of those scriptures. I'm standing right before you. Everything you pour over in the scriptures to interpret is right in front of you. That's, a, that's an incredibly compassionate thing to say. He says, guys, you know, you know your Old Testament. You remember when David and those guys, they were being sought, you know, they were being chased after. So they, they sought shelter and they sought nourishment in the temple and they unlawfully ate the bread of the presence that was reserved for the priest and they were not condemned for it. If David, who is your king and my ancestor, could do that, how much more can I, king of creation, walk through this field and pick some grain? And if the earthly priest who, according to the law, can work on the Sabbath to perform their duties, how much more can I, the ultimate priest who, um, who all the other priests point to, walk through these fields and do some work on the Sabbath, so to speak? How much more? Guys, I'm all about the Sabbath because the Sabbath is all about me. That's what he's saying. 
So Jesus responds to this type of legalism with a very compassionate expression of the gospel that makes much of him because he is the fulfillment of the law. The opposition to Jesus was rooted in a love for Scripture, improperly interpreted. And Jesus' response is proper interpretation, which is pointing to him. Jesus would say to John, to them in John 5, 39 and 40, You pour over the Scriptures because you think, Oh, that we would be accused of pouring over the Scriptures. Because you think... You have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, and you are not willing to come to me to have life. I've been teaching a Bible interpretation class for for Liberty University for 12 years. It's a lot of the same papers over and over again. And I am no longer surprised to have students who are shocked that they can't just make up any particular meaning for a Bible passage that I assigned to them. (laughs) One student last semester said, last term, said, Dr. Timms, which I love because they're the only people who call me that. (laughs) The assignment says to tell you what we think the passage means. And I did that. So I don't understand why I got a C. (laughs) And I said, I do want to know what you think. But you need to think the right thing if you want an A. (laughs) It wasn't that tone. It was a very professional, you know. (laughs) But, But people are always surprised that they can't just read it and go, oh, this must mean this. No, it's not what it means, okay? It means what it says. There are right ways and many wrong ways to interpret the Bible. And if we don't interpret the Bible in such a way that gets us to Jesus, then we'll interpret in other ways that usually lead to moralism or legalism. And ultimately, that leads us to oppose the gospel. Pharisees loved it, but they missed it. And because they missed it, they missed Jesus. Their opposition was rooted in a love for Scripture misinterpreted and Jesus says the Bible the scriptures are about me if you miss me you miss the Bible okay all religious roads void of the gospel lead to either moral superiority or moral indifference or moral rebellion The Pharisees, rooted in their love for Scripture, knew what it said, but not what it meant. And what they found was moral superiority, which is a stark opposition to the gospel. Okay? So, opposition was rooted in a love for Scripture. Terrifying. (laughs) Number two, opposition was rooted in... Don't, do not throw anything at me. Opposition was rooted in tradition. Okay. It's not just a love for Scripture that motivated the Pharisees to oppose Jesus. They also had a love for tradition. Look at verses 9 through 14. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. He saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied to them, Who among you? If he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out. 
You've seen the video, right, of the, the trenches that people have dug in their, between their fields to keep out wolves and things like that, and the sheep are in them. And then they work very hard to pull them out, and the sheep are so grateful, and they take three bounces, and they fall right back into the pit. That's what Jesus is talking about. And if that happened on a Sabbath, you just leave your sheep in there? No. A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what it... Ooh, underline that. It is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Think about that. Holier than thou, moral superiority. See Jesus do this, and they plot how they might kill him. They're completely blind. So there's nothing in the law that prevented Jesus or anybody else from healing this man. And even in the Pharisaic code, you could, uh, you were allowed in their Pharisaic code, you were allowed to make an attempt to heal someone if their life was immediate in danger. So the fact that the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus doing something so good and so merciful shows you just how steeped in tradition they are. They don't even know why you're not supposed to do it. They're just, it's just what you don't do, okay? Uh, several years ago, oh no, two years ago, maybe, yeah, two years ago, Jonathan was in a production at school of the musical Fiddler on the Roof, okay? Have, y'all, have you ever watched or read or seen it? It's great, okay? You, do, you need to, to watch the Broadway. It's free on Amazon Prime if you're, if you're a human being. You have a Prime subscription. So it's, I know you can watch it. Watch it for The movie is there. I don't know if the Broadway is there. But the, the primary character in... So The Fiddle on the Roof, since most of you did not raise your hand, The Fiddle on the Roof is a story of a Jewish um, uh, town in Russia. Um, and... Uh, it, hold that thought, buddy. Okay, thanks. And uh, so... And the, one of the, the main character's name is Tevya, T-E-V-Y-E, and he's got five daughters. And, and they, so they live in this Russian town, and they're a Russian police officer, buddy, hush, they're, they're in a Russian town, uh, in, the, in a Russian uh, environment. So, um, and they, so they're a police officer, you know, that kind of thing. But they're, so they're Jewish in a little enclave. And in the very beginning of the, um, of the Broadway production, Tevya is explaining their culture. Uh, through song and talk and back, back, back and forth. And he, and he talks about how they have their little, that they're always in prayer, wear their yarmulkes, and they have their little prayer shawl that they always wear because they, to remind them that they're always in prayer and always remind them that they're underneath the sovereign of God. And he, it, it, that's right, to show their constant devotion to God. Now, Luke, give me a minute, okay? Thank you. Um, Luke has it memorized. So... <laughs> Um, and he does that. And, 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 and then he goes, you might ask, why do we do all these things? And then he leans in. He goes, I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. It's a tradition. And that's the name of the song. Tradition. He's lost the reasons why. But you do it because it's tradition. And that's what's happened to the Jews. In order to honor the Sabbath, the Pharisees were willing to do nothing. Okay? But the Lord of the Sabbath was willing to do good. 
devotion to tradition, where when you've lost the meaning of it, will lead you to do nothing. How many dying churches in the American landscape are there out of a devotion to tradition, void of its meaning or the gospel? And when you're loyal to tradition and you've lost the meaning of why you're doing what you're doing, you do nothing to change. And if you love tradition or custom more than true spiritual life, you will stand in opposition to the advance of the kingdom of God. So much so that you will plot his death. Loyalty to tradition is what led to a Pharisee group to plot Jesus' death. Loyalty to tradition in the church. You've lost the meaning of why you're doing what you're doing. You just do it because it's tradition. Is to stand in opposition to the gospel. You make yourself an enemy while looking like its friend. Okay. It gets it gets worse. <sighs> opposition, love out of scripture, but opposition, love for tradition is opposition. Third, op- oh y'all, please don't hurt. Okay, opposition was rooted in conspiracy theory. This is, this is Weston's favorite topic that I use in the pulpit, conspiracy theories. The resurrection was a conspiracy, right? But this one really is conspiracy. Look at verses 22 through 32. The Pharisees were opposed to Jesus because of their belief in conspiracy. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. I I can't get over it. Like, can you just imagine watching all of this? And all the crowds were astounded and said, look, could this be the son of David? I mean, that is Messiah 101. He did this thing and the crowds said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, they didn't ask a question. They spread a rumor. They spread a theory. It's a conspiracy theory. This man drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So determined were the Pharisees to condemn Jesus for his breaches of their Sabbath regulations that they attributed Jesus' healings to the devil. Okay? You, can't make, you, you really can't make this stuff up. The Pharisees would rather call good, the moral superior Pharisees would rather call good evil and by necessity call evil good than attribute to Jesus the glory he was actually due. And if it took a wild theory spread out on the dark web into the world that other people might find interesting, if, if that's what it takes to make Jesus less of a threat, then that's what they're willing to do. Okay? But Jesus is not going to have any of it. Now, Jesus, if you see this in the text, Jesus doesn't care if they actually believe this theory or if they're just using it for political gain because Jesus loves them and he's, he's going to meet them where they are again and he's going to make another gospel presentation. And he's relentless in his evangelism. Look what he says in verses 25 to 29. Knowing their thoughts... He told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So let me, let me just break this down for you. Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is if, I, if I'm empowered by Satan to heal this person, and that was my mode, like that was my motive, that was, the, that was part, that's, that's the team that I'm on. If Satan is using me as the ruler of demons to end demons, okay, then Satan's kingdom would be divided against itself and would be in ruins. Okay? But that's not the case. Satan's very much in business, right? Satan's not going to self-destruct. So Jesus is saying your belief, your theory, whether you actually believe it or not, just know that it's, it's theologically and supernaturally untenable. It's, it's illogical. It's not going to stop them from using it. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't care if they actually believe it or if they're just saying it to weaken his character. So he uses the opportunity to preach the gospel, which you can see in verse 28. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, if, if what's really true is what's true, the kingdom of God is among you. I am who I say I am. Your position is untenable, which means mine is the only one that is true and right. I'm the, I'm the Messiah. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. He gives them the gospel. And then lastly, opposition was rooted in an adulterous heart. It gets even nuttier. You think think we've reached the end of the spiral, but we haven't. Look at verse 38. Skip to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Oh, good Lord. Now that Jesus has destroyed their logic with regard to um, the, the conspiracy theories about him uh, being a part of, uh, being a, you know, the, the leader of demons, okay? And saying, you know, your signs are really just signs of the devil. Now, in verse 38, they want more signs to prove that he's the Messiah, right? It went from you do these because you're a devil to do more of these to prove that you're God. Okay? That's verse 38. And Jesus, that's so intellectually dishonest, I think Jesus just, just doesn't even bother right? He just takes it straight. I'll tell you what he does. He knows that the intellectual dishonesty is a symptom of a bad heart. Which is why he says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. The reason you're asking for more signs is because it's intellectually dishonest compared to what you've been been doing. And it reveals to me that you've you've got a bad heart that this is a heart issue. And rather than admit it, the Pharisees pretend that they don't have enough evidence on which to make a decision. Okay, Underneath intellectual skepticism or uh, conspiracy, there is 
It's often a, a heart that just doesn't want to know the answer, doesn't want to deal with the answer. But that does not keep Jesus from trying to deal with their heart. He's so, y'all, it's unbelievably how hard Jesus pushes to share the gospel with them. Look at verse 39. It's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Sunday school for the win. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh, 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 think about what you learned about Nineveh today, will stand up at the judgment with this, gener- with this generation and condemn it. Woo! Right? Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, you know who that is? Queen of Sheba, Egypt, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, someone greater than Solomon is here. You see what Jesus is, is saying? You see the good news? He's like, Jonah, Jonah came out of a fish after three days and three nights, preached to Nineveh, and they repented. I'm here. Jesus says, and I'm going to spend three days on the earth as a dead man. And I'm going to come back to life. And yet as things stand right now, you won't believe it. The very people of Nineveh will judge you because I'm greater than Jonah. They heard Jonah and believed. You're looking at me and you won't believe. Nineveh will judge the Pharisees. Nineveh. Nineveh. Why? Because it doesn't matter how you live. It matters what you believe to be right with God. And when you believe him, you will start living rightly. And they did in Nineveh. But the Pharisees aren't. And he says, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. And Jesus says, I am the true and better Solomon. I stand in your midst. And as things stand right now, you don't believe who I am. So the queen of Egypt will be in a position of judgment over you. Who pour over the scriptures. Because you think in them you have eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And you will not come. That's good news. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The true and greater David is here. The true and greater priest is here. The true and greater temple is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. The true and greater Jonah is here. The true and greater Solomon is here. The kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ is here. Repent and believe the good news. When the Pharisees opposed Jesus due to a misguided love of Scripture, Jesus pointed them to himself through the Scriptures. When the Pharisees opposed Jesus from a love of tradition, Jesus showed them to whom their traditions pointed. When the Pharisees opposed Jesus from a love of conspiracy and lies, Jesus showed them the truth. And when the Pharisees opposed Jesus from an adulterous heart, masked with a false type of intellectualism, Jesus cut to their heart and showed them who they really were. That is proof that God loves us. Because he meets us right where we are and he tells us what we need to hear in order to believe in Jesus. Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother's, his mother, sorry, and brothers 
were standing outside wanting to speak with him. Go to Mark 3, John 7. What you will see is that Jesus' mother and brothers thought Jesus had gone to cuckoo land. They thought he was out of his mind. Mary, who had pondered all these things in her heart, was not yet on board with what her son had become. And his brothers were not followers yet. Opposition to Jesus also came from blood for a time. Okay. And so what Jesus wants us to understand is that tradition, family, the things that we do and should hold dear in, in this in, in a sense of in a culture and that it's healthy and it's good if it comes out of the root of the gospel. If you begin to worship this thing, forget what you're doing. If you do, if you do all that, what you need to understand is that loyalty to Jesus is greater than your traditions. Loyalty to Jesus is is greater than it's greater than that. It's greater than blood. Because Jesus says in verse 48, he replied to the one who was speaking, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He stretched out, I love that, that he says, stretching out his hand toward the disciples. The disciples. You want to tick off that list? Tax collector? I mean, let's just go down the list, right? He said, here are my family, right? For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He is so, so loving to constantly point out the gospel to us and show us himself. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that we would respond in faith. We ask that we would respond in faith. That, as we saw saw in the Ninevites today, that they... They believed God. They believed your word and they, re- they believed in who you are and who you said you are and what you were going to do. They believed God and they repented because the kingdom of God was near. And now on this side of the timeline, we know what your son did. We know that he was killed. We know that he was raised again. We know that he ascends and ascended and we know that he sits at the throne, and we know that he reigns, and we know that he's coming back again. The question is, will we believe God? Lead us to believe God. Lead us to believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.